Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is Episode 34, Act 1, Daniel Levy, Reflection, Connection, and Resonance, recorded January 10th, 2020, in New York City. Screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie but they don't apply to people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives aloud are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for old people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA community. Thanks for listening and thanks for being a part of our global community. Help us spread the word about the podcast and tell a friend or a colleague to subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast player. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we now have a pod shop. So go to teachingartistry.org slash pod shop and get yourself or a loved one a tea or tank or a mug or a hoodie, it is sweater weather, or a tote bag, who can't have enough totes? Hmm? The podcast is partnering with Creative Generation for a video series called We Can't Go Back. This interview series focuses on the journeys of artists, educators, and community activists, and their anti-racist and liberatory practices through the arts. Together, we examine, interrogate, and confront racist policies and systems that are rooted in white supremacy and the necessary dialogues that we are having are actually supporting my own practice. Episodes are released weekly and we'll start sharing them on this audio platform starting next month. Uh, But you can watch now on the YouTube channel. There are about six or seven dynamic conversations with artivists and arts leaders. Um, subscribe, why don't you, to the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body YouTube channel. How you doing? You doing okay? I, I took a necessary break at the end of August and into September and went away for a little bit. And it was so important for me to regroup and work on self-care. Um, I'm always anxious, like super anxious all the time, stressed out and completely overworked. How about you? Well, not much has changed for me, but I'm trying to recalibrate to move out of that constant sort of stress position um, that I find myself in, which is not an easy thing, but I wanted to share that. And um, I've been reading about how trauma lives in our bodies and we know for a fact that the arts and creativity can support people with who are living with trauma. And 
um, as if we've learned from Sean Jinright or Mindy Early, that we know that um, it's important to really start with ourselves in terms of radical healing and radical self-love in order to give what we must and have to do and want to do um, for our communities. So I am working to do more to care for myself in order to be better equipped to handle all the important work that I must do. Um, so yeah, how are you taking care of yourself? So this is National Arts Education Week and there's a lot to celebrate. There's a lot to advocate for. There are actually multiple arts advocacy campaigns to support um, creativity, arts education, as well as the creative economy. And I would like to point out that there's one particular um, campaign called Because of Arts, hashtag, hashtag Because of Arts Ed. And I'm curious, what's your Because of Arts Ed story or something that you want to highlight this week and beyond? Um, I was thinking about this and thinking how actually like the episodes and the conversations that I have here are often, you know, could have the, because of arts ed, I became X, Y, and Z. And now I do this work in, in the creative arts field. So this episode features Daniel Levy, who is the author of a teaching artist's companion, how to define and develop your practice. And something that I'm recognizing now is that he was actually the last guest that I was able to capture or record in person before the pandemic. And that was on February 29th, Leap Day. Um, I'm just getting to know Daniel and it has been lovely to get to know him. And these con- this conversation was um, a window into his um, early years and to learn better, better learn about him as a musician and as a teaching artist. Now, I'm not a, a musician, but we actually connected a lot in this conversation um, where music seems to have played a large part in both of our lives. And I was recently, recently told that music helps to unlock something in me and in my creativity. And honestly, that is something that I had forgotten. So I am, that's part of my self-care practice is to start to lean into um, playing music more um, at all moments that I possibly can to help uh, support joy and, and creativity. So in this episode or in this act, we hear about Daniel's upbringing, early music career, and how he came into teaching. Here is episode 34, act one, Daniel Levy, reflection, connection, and resonance. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Courtney Jean. (laughs) Daniel Levy. Courtney Jean. Ooh, is there a little song that you can come up with? Uh, hmm. Well, no, uh, yeah, now we have to start again because I would have said, Courtney Jean, you got the cutest little Courtney Jean. <laughs> that was the one that came to mind, unfortunately, <laughs> which is completely inappropriate. So <laughs> we can't start with that. Why not? Okay, we got it then. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for being here. Um, I'm excited to talk to you. I'm, I'm excited, excited to get to know you better. We're actually. getting to know each other, yeah. which I love. Thank you. I, I'm I was very happy when you said, let's do this. And um, yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think I said this to you before. So I'll tell you now that um, the first time I guess we formally met was at ITAC four mm-hmm. and you came over to me on the rooftop of Carnegie hall. You were lunching. I interrupted I your lunch. Lunching. I was also thinking, I was thinking about the podcast uh, recording that was happening that evening, that 
evening. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then you were like, I wrote this book. Maybe you, you, maybe you could do something about it. I've, I've listened to your podcast and I was like, Oh, a fan. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am um, a fan. And yeah. then, and then, uh, it wasn't until later and I don't exactly know when, but it wasn't until later that I had seen you before. And I was like, he does look familiar to me, but I know we haven't met. And where I had seen you before that it, it clicked for me at some point. So I, I know Tom Cabanis and he had, um, at, at one point I was working at new school, teaching at new school. And I had um, him come in and do a, a guest spot talking about the lullaby project. Yeah. And he played this video uh, that the New York Times uh, yeah, piece, the documentary. Uh, the documentary, and that's where I saw you, where you were working with this mother, yeah, to uh, create the melody at I Sienna it was. House. Yeah, yeah, it's a homeless shelter mm-hmm. specifically for uh, for moms to be. Yeah, and she was having some she was having some challenges, and I imagine she, I, I I would love to hear the story actually because when I see it as a viewer and somebody who really admires that particular program, I, I am trying to put myself in the mindset of the mother to be or the mother. I think she had her daughter at that point, maybe, or at least in the documentary, she already had her daughter, but just trying to put myself in the mindset of how vulnerable that moment or many moments could have been for her and how I felt again, it was captured in film, but there was just such a, there's such a, a gentleness with which you were working with her and honoring her ideas and trying to try things out and see where it finally felt right for her. So could you tell that story? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Lullaby Project, uh, Emily and Tom uh, at Carnegie Hall, two really wonderful um, composer, performer, artists, uh, designed this program. Carnegie supported it and grew it over the years till now it's national or even international and the idea is that mothers-to-be and new mothers are writing original lullabies for their children in collaboration with uh, singer-songwriters, composers, other artists. And I have a background, most of the work I've done as a composer is writing in theater, so I'm a collaborator. I'm really comfortable with it. I love working with playwrights and lyricists and directors and finding a common vision and, and and getting to something together that I never would have done on my own. Mm. I, I love that work uh, and it comes naturally to me. So in this uh, in this project it was Rachel and she had a son Milton and the documentary team was there to capture this uh, in some interesting ways. And I really liked Rachel because uh, from the from the get-go because she was so she was sort of outspoken and very direct. Um, just no nonsense and there was something I I just found that extremely attractive I liked that she knew what she liked she knew what she didn't like Mm. and uh, interestingly I uh, because when you're working with someone and you're trying to draw out lyrics and trying to draw out melodies um, you want to keep a recording going because cool stuff happens and you want to capture it if you can. Mm. So if I'm asking her to try to sing something, sort of drawing her out, if she if she does, I, I don't want to miss it. And, and I do want to capture it. I took that recording afterwards and edited together a video. Uh, but that's not a video of us. It, it's, a video of, uh, it's a video of the audio of what our interaction was. Mm. Now in Lullaby Project, you've got somewhere between 
20 and 40 minutes to write an entire song with somebody. Wow. So it's got to, it's got to, the relationship has to take shape very quickly. There's got to be a certain amount of trust. You're way in people's space. Mm. What is more in somebody's space than their relationship with their child? Oh my gosh. Mm. It's a big ask. Let me into this intimate space with you. And now we're going to write a a song for this like most important thing in your life. Mm. And you've never met me before. You have no idea who I am. So there's those first impressions. There's a little bit of warm ups, and then boom, let's make something. Um, it's kind of wonderful, and it usually works because I don't know. You t- with uh, Rachel, who I'm still friends with. I I think she's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, we sat down, and what was interesting was she had very strong feelings, and this is great in a collaborator. Yes, I like that. No, I don't want it to be that way. Mm. And we took her idea for, uh, you know, she started out with, uh, let let your mind wander to a calm place. Let your mind dream of a beautiful something. There were a lot of words. Mm. And we talked about, we started with that. And I asked her more about the feeling that she wanted the lullaby to evoke. And also, okay. So uh, let me say that when we are collaborating with participants in Lullaby Project or with any, you know, with, even when we're collaborating with students, I think we have to make a choice as to how much of our true artistic selves we're going to bring to the creative process. Like, are you there just to sort of be the amanuensis or the mouthpiece of the participants that you're working with? And you want everything to come from them? Or are you there as a co-equal partner mm. and you're willing to say, you know, I think this chord would be really cool. What do you think? Or what if the melody goes up here instead of down? You know, in my belief system, I don't see why I would withhold that. Mm. The danger is that if you're seen as the expert, the participant might value what you say too much. So you have to present it. It has to be sort of the tone has to be right and the relationship has to be right for you to bring these things. But if we're going to co-write a song, I don't want to pretend that I don't have ideas. I don't want to pretend that I'm not responding to what my writing partner's doing. I want to respond and give it. And I think there's an ease then. If I'm easy about that, then the participant can be easy too. So with Rachel, we had this. Mm. Um, And it didn't stop her at all from telling me, you know, what she did and didn't like. But what we came to was less words and more space. Mm. Let your mind dream. Let your mind wander. Set your mind free. Let your mind dream. That empty space between the lines. You can count on me. I will always be there. You can be at peace. I will always be there. Loving, gentle, and really an expression of her. Mm. Um, so that's how that kind of thing comes about. And they captured a lot of that, do you think, in the in the documentary? I did. I did. I, I remember the sort of like she was... No, <laughs> I remember those moments, but, and, and it's intimidating because you're in a studio, you're recording it, you know, and like you said, it's for the person that means most in your life. And so you want to, you want it to be 
great and amazing for that kid. You know, it just it's it's a beautiful program, and it's really it's interesting because this is I feel like this is the first time I really have a better understanding of what's actually happening in the you know like I could see it, but to understand that from the inside or for the from. In, I don't know the other side of the camera I guess um is is important it's good it's good for me to hear because now if I see that again I'll have a much better deeper connection to what what that experience was like for her too yeah wow when did you when did you start learning how to play music I wanted to play drums when I was about eight years old badly wanted to be a drummer and uh, I was already like like making up songs, and I walked around singing a lot. And uh, my parents said, uh, "Drums? Hmm. How about guitar?" So I said, "Okay, guitar." And I, they found me a teacher. Uh, it was a man who seemed to me immensely old. This was in Springfield, Illinois. Mm -hmm. I was I was born in Indiana. We moved around the Midwest, all around the Midwest. Uh, my father was an extremely restless person who liked beginnings, but really couldn't see anything through. So he'd get a new job where we'd start building a house in the woods and go live there. We moved into a house that had no windows and no doors in, the, in the middle of the woods in Illinois. I had these great experiences in a way. Later on, I lived on a 200-acre farm with sheep and cows and horses and chickens and dogs and cats and baling hay and chopping wood. We heated our house with two Franklin stoves. I was chopping wood every day. <laughs> um, so I, I've got that in my background and appreciation for that, that life. Mm. Um, but I, so I started playing when I was about eight and f strangely enough, later on the instrument that I really got interested in was bass, which is kind of a cross between a guitar and a drum. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, mm -hmm. the bass is what makes you move. It's yeah. not the drums. Mm -hmm. It's the bass line. Really? Yeah, that's what makes you move. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's the bass line. It's fun to be a bass player. Yeah. Oh my gosh, the floor shakes when you play. Oof. It is really fun. Have you been in bands? Oh yeah, I started out, I was, by the time I was, well, I formed a band when I was in fourth grade. And started playing then, and then by the time I was 12 and 13, I was, by the time I was 13, I was playing in adult bands. By the time I was 14, I was fronting an adult band. What? Playing in bars and for wedding receptions. Wow. Because <laughs> it was, I was in a little town, I mean, and they needed people, and then, you know, that's why I picked up the bass, and I would, playing bass and singing is so much fun. So I grew up making really practical uh, music to be of service to people's celebrations, hundreds of wedding receptions. And as a kid in Ohio, in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, mm. the back of beyond, um, I made a crap load of money. Hey. Like playing bass and singing and, you know, doing disco songs and and top 40 and R&B. And it was a real education. And the best thing was I got, I was always with people who were accomplished. I had to catch up. I had mm. to get caught up with those people. It's a wonderful position for a young musician to be in. Get with people that are better than you. And at about the same time, right away, I got into the local theater scene. Uh, I can I tell that story? Yeah, please. I I was asked to be a troubadour at a local art festival. This is like okay. This is like in a this little town, Cambridge, Ohio. Right? It's like directly south of Cleveland. Uh, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's coal mining and farm country. Mm -hmm. 
and they have an art festival. And the art festival asked me to be a strolling troubadour. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. I'm whatever, I'm 13 or something. Uh, yeah, I'll do it, but uh, I want a troubadour costume. And they said, uh, well, go ask the local theater. So I went to the local summer theater, the mm-hmm. barn theater. There was a gigantic barn outside of town. They did theater every summer. They had the yeah. equity actors mm-hmm. and equity directors. And I said, oh, hi, can I have a, a troubadour costume? And they said, what? Who are you? And I said, oh, I'm doing this thing. Uh, could you guys loan me a, like a doublet or something? And they said, oh, yeah, sure. But uh, listen, uh, do you do you play guitar? Yes. Can you improvise? Yeah. Would you come in and improvise some music for a play? And I said, oh, sure. I said, whatever. I don't, I don't go to plays. I don't care. But yeah, I want the doublet. <laughs> so they said, okay, come to this house on this date. And we go to this house. And this is like the actor house. And there's pretty girls sewing costumes. And there's a big pot of soup on the stove. I'm like, oh, this is all right. Mm. Would you like some soup? Yeah. All right. And we sit down. They say, here's the doublet. Do you like it? It's beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, this is a great doublet. (laughs) They say, okay, now we're going to, here's our little tape recorder. Now, let us tell you about the play. It was Butterflies Are Free. This has got a, a, there's a blind man who plays guitar and it's this about his relationship with a woman and how it develops. So they said, in this part of the story, the character is feeling this. Could you play some music about that feeling? And he's a guitar player. So could you play some music that's like that feeling? Mm-hmm. I said, how about this? And they said, good, let's record that. And I recorded that little piece, you know, 30 seconds of music or right. something. They said, okay, in the next scene, when we transition to the next scene, the character is feeling this and we want this feeling. Could you make some music like that? I improvised. I sat there for half an hour just improvising transition music and bookends for the acts. And I think the director was there saying, yeah, that's good. And they captured it and and they said, all right, great. I said, are we done? Yeah. Can I take the doublet? Yeah. They said, why don't you come to to see the play on opening night? And I was like, well, okay, sure. And uh, took the doublet, did the thing, and a couple weeks later, there's the opening night of the play. I go to the theater. This is kind of new for me. Sit down. The lights go down, and the guitar music starts playing. And I'm like, oh, that, that doesn't suck. That's kind of cool. And the story starts unfolding. We get to know the characters and the situation. And I'm like, oh, that, that's cool. I like that. I like the character. And then the transition music comes, and I'm like, oh, that works. And the play is unfolding with my music in it. And by the end of the play, I'm I'm sold. I'm like, I want to do this. I get this. Mm. I understand what's happening on the stage. I understand how the music interacts with it. I want to do more of this. Mm. So I became a theater intern. You know, I built sets. Mm-hmm. I cleaned the toilets. I worked in the box office. Started taking acting classes. I got really into the theater. Uh, within a year and a half, the director of the theater invited me to write a musical with him. It toured southeastern Ohio. Wow. Um, so, like, these doors started opening. I started writing music for the plays and then continued to do that all through college. And that's what I did when I first came to New York, too. Wow. So, I became a theater composer because I loved theater people. Mm-hmm. I got it. It was like this easy connection. I liked the work and I liked the collaborating. And and ha- and I love this story, love it. Um, but I'm just curious about your family. Like, were they understanding? How was your dad? <laughs> <laughs> um, they, you know, my my father. You know, and this relates to the teaching artist work. Mm. I, when when we're working with 
children who have experienced trauma in their lives, I have a little connection with that in that my, there was substance abuse and depression in my household. Mm. And so my father uh, was very distant and had a very hands-off attitude. As long as I wasn't tearing something down, he was probably okay with mm-hmm. it. Uh, but he just wasn't, there just wasn't a lot of communication or guidance going on. Uh, my mother was a very artistic person. Um, when she was in college, she had been the uh, like the theater reviewer for the school newspaper. Oh. And so she was on the board of the local theater, and she loved all that stuff. But she was also suffering at the time uh, with alcoholism. Mm. And so there was also a distance there. Mm. Uh, I was much happier being at the theater right. than I was being at home. Gotcha. So I just spent all my time at the theater mm-hmm. as much as I possibly right. could. Or out with the band or at band rehearsal right. or something. If, if I could be away from home, that was healthier. Yeah. And I met some uh, sane adults who started to guide me. You know, teenagers, kids have, a, I think, have a natural radar. Some have a little better than others. Mm. Uh, to, they want to be around sane, uh, healthy people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also as parents, I've since found out, one of our jobs is to get out of the kids' way so that they can find mentors who are not us. Mm. Whether you like those mentors or not, <laughs> the child needs to have the experience of identifying them out mm-hmm, in the world, mm-hmm. gravitating toward them, and being with them. Right. You know, And my own son, over time, you know, there were some mentors that he chose that I did not like at all but you the big uh, the big lesson for uh i know what are we talking about parenting now um the the big lesson is shut up and get out of the way <laughs> yeah because the child has to grow up yeah and you got to not be the mentor for a while mm. that's really hard um it was hard for me but yeah. but i'm better at it now <laughs> so um so what was my home life like you know that my parents loved the arts and they played a lot of music at that uh, shaped my musical brain when I was young. A lot mm. of folk music, mm. uh, Simon and Garfunkel, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, you know, good solid melodies. And, and especially with the Paul Simon stuff, you know, the lyrics are actually like, there's a lot to chew on there. Mm-hmm. Um, would I have preferred growing up with like Ray Charles and R&B? I actually would have. I love that music, but it didn't, it wasn't part of that foundational layer for me mm. is something I had to discover later mm-hmm. and I've tried to you know you can't relay your foundation right. you can add to it add to it yeah so I've got some rooms added on yeah I mean my my dad played guitar and he was a singer and um I'm not exactly sure I think he taught himself how to play mm-hmm. but I'm not 100% sure about that but um uh there's always music playing in our house um my my family uh, dynamics were also sometimes funky. So I would be that kid who would be like, I'm going to stay out as long as I can and not, not engage at home because especially as I got older, um, when I was younger, it was more like I, I wanted to be all up in the biz and like understand why this, why you like this music. How did you know about this music? What, what's going on or anything really. Um, and he loved Paul Simon, uh, Simon Garfunkel, Paul Simon, and Kenny Lockins. Mm-hmm. Like, and then there would be like R and B and Motown also just playing uh, uh, constantly in our in our house. And then there was those moments where, like, some 
some older, <laughs> older song would come on and my parents would dance to it. And it evoked this whole other era that I'd never seen anybody do that social, that kind of social dancing. Right. So I was like, I don't understand how you know how to do this. Wow. Yeah. When did you learn this? Like what? And why don't you do it all the time? Why don't I do it? You know, those kinds of things. Like, why isn't this done now? Um, so that's the kind of person I was where I'm like something new. What, what is this? I want to understand, but I, I didn't necessarily, um, you know, do the research on my own. I wanted you to tell me the story. Yeah. 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 Anyway. So, so my parents were, uh, well more my dad. Like if I, if I showed any interest in anything, literally anything, he would, you know, try to push me all the way into being like, you know, Serena Williams, you know, if it was tennis or if it was, you know, whatever it was. And I, and that always was super off putting to me, not just encouragement and support, but, uh, but push. like push to now be uh, the best at it. Huh. And, it. and I'd be like, all right, I'm good. So I flitted around until, until he stopped that, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'd be like, you know, I'm now I'm just going to do what I want to do. And actually what, where I ended up going that he didn't push me was sports. I'm just realizing this now actually, but yeah, I, I did a lot of sports in high school. It started because we moved to a new neighborhood and all the kids in that neighborhood were super sporty. And the only way it was tiny little neighborhood. Did you start swimming then? Mm, Well, my swimming, I think started prior to me moving to that new neighborhood because I was only a mere few blocks away from the local pool. Mm. And so I spent my entire summers there, um, and and this was a time when you didn't need an adult to accompany you, so you just went. But they knew where I was. And then in the evenings after six, you had to be accompanied by an adult. So yeah. they, my parents would show up. My mom would swim laps. Nice. My dad did not know how to swim, but he enjoyed like chatting with the other adults in the in the near the snack bar or in the uh, area near the gate. <laughs> um, and so then it was just sort of, and then we'd like go home and have a barbecue or, you know, so those, those summer nights were really ex- like memorable to me. Yeah. Um, but the pool was like my home away from home. It was like my babysitter. And I literally spent the entire day there, day in and day out. I was like dark as night by the end of the, the summer. <laughs> um, and I never put on sunscreen, which that's a whole other <laughs> story anyway. But my, but, but the, the, to go back to like parenting, right. So like, yeah. the, like when I was younger, it was great. Like I was proud that my parents showed up and then, you know, as you get older, you're like, all right, we're good. We're good. Uh, um, and yeah, I was trying to space. find my own, yeah, my own space. And that idea of like mentorship is interesting to me too, because my parents had re- like most of their friends were church friends and or like neighbors. And there were just some that I was like not interested in being engaged with, but there are a few of them that I was like, you're like, I see something um, in you that I'm interested in. So like I asked my uh, somebody to be like my, um, sponsor for confirmation Uh and he knew me since i was little and he was so touched that i had asked him and like to me it was kind of a no-brainer where i was like you're gentle you're nice you're good to your kids i like your kids Uh you've always been so nice to me like this is i'm surprised that you're surprised (laughs) but you know of course i don't understand what people you know i was that kid who just like went through life and didn't connect like i'm not i don't know if i'm saying this right but like I was surprised that he was surprised, but I don't know why I was surprised that he was surprised. <laughs> Does that make sense? What I'm saying, like, 
like he, he to was, me, it was a no brainer. But of course, why would he think that I was going to do that? <laughs> right. You're making me think of uh, also through a church thing. One mm-hmm. of the reasons, one of the things that brought me to New York from the Midwest was now that I'm remembering it, there was a a church barbecue where we we went to the church summer camp and everybody brought their food. Mm. And then there were these new people in the church, the New Yorkers. Oh, They're from New York. And New York is like, it's it's not quite real. It's sort of like Oz or something. (laughs) And so they came and they had, they were cool. They were nice. And they had better food than everybody else at the barbecue. Mm. I was like, Something about those New Yorkers. <laughs> I wonder what New York is like. Yeah. And that was a little a little window. Um, yeah, we we run into people that mentor us. It can be just a brush. Yeah, and those and also about foundational experiences. I want to. It, it's making me think of going back to. Um, even a little moment can sort of have a resonance that doesn't that lasts a long time. Mm. I mean, your your summers, your evenings, all the way to the evenings, the pool, the mm-hmm, pool, the mm-hmm. pool. That's a long, that's like a habit, and yeah. it sort of resonates through your life. Yeah. Um, but also, it can be a short moment. I remember we had um, gone to the Illinois State Fair one night, and I, I was really worried. I was probably about nine years old, and my mother had been listening a lot to this Glenn Campbell album. It's got a picture of him on the front. He's in a brown corduroy jacket. Mm-hmm. So we're leaning on one fist with his guitar by him, and he looks really handsome. <laughs> and my mother is listening to this album over and over and over again, and I am pretty sure that she is in love with Glenn Campbell. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to the Illinois State Fair, and he's going to sing. <gasps> oh, boy. And I'm anything could happen. <laughs> she could run off with him or something. I don't know what's going to happen. She obviously loves him. <sighs> So we go, he, he like comes out in a blue jumpsuit. He plays guitar behind his head. I'm like, dang, okay, I want to do this too. Any, any kid would. And then we're going back to the car. We're on our way back to the parking lot. And sort of on some corner of the fair, like away from everything else, by the parking lot, basically, like the, the worst place you want to put a group of performers, there's a semi-trailer that the side is opened up and inside there's a stage. And on the stage is this jazz band that's got like Latin percussion and a flute player and there's orange and green and red and blue lights. And the music they are playing is absolutely stunningly captivating, mesmerizing. And I see this never happened before or since. My, we're walking by through this grassy field where this trailer's parked. And my parents, without a word, sit down on the grass and we sit there for 45 minutes, and uh-huh. it was absolutely magical. And they seemed happy in a way that mm. I didn't often see them happy. Mm. It seemed to move them. I was moved by it just because the music just was, I'd never heard anything like this, and it was fabulous. And they seemed moved too. And that moment, that 45 minutes of mm. being in that space, that was transformative too. I know. I mean, I don't know. You know, like you armchair psychologize yourself. I don't know if how much of my life has been spent like trying to recreate that moment mm. with for audiences like this sort of mesmerized, happy, engaged, but kind of abstract thing. You know, mm. colors, sounds. What's happening here? What does it mean? Mm. I don't know. It's beautiful. That's enough. Yeah. Anyway. What a nice story. It's, I can see it still. It's yeah. easy to bring it back. I'm, I'm picturing it too. 
I, it takes me to, um, being an adult. Um, I was very close with both my parents and our relationships looked different, but I always felt exactly myself. So I didn't feel like I was ever being false or any, in any way, but their love of music really like held them together in many ways. And so I remember my dad had, um, a house in, in Pennsylvania and we went to a, a state fair of some sort and James Taylor, yeah, James Taylor was playing and, and we all were like super enthralled with this concert and he's not flashy in any particular way, but no. like we all knew all the songs and there was just this moment. I, it was one of my favorite moments of, of, uh, that time frame, which was, uh, maybe 2004, 2005, something uh. like that. And, um, it, it was really cold. It was raining and it was cold, but we were under like a, uh, we were in a state a stadium like place so there was, was this up, like open... Tanglewood or something maybe yeah maybe he lived in the near the Poconos so maybe I don't know <laughs> anyway so we were under this over uh overhang and we went back to the car to get like a big blanket and so the three of us are like huddled under this like comforter <laughs> blanket singing James Taylor oh, it's so uh, sweet. <laughs> it was really like one of like one of a, a good memory and it was a you know full-length co- concert um and I can still see it and seeing both how how happy the two of them were yeah. um yeah. and and how I I remember sort of balking and being like why am I here I can't but then really like turned that concert turned like loving the that. way around and really yeah it was a good time that sounds really sweet yeah well, before we leave parents, I want to give a shout out to my mom because I mentioned mm-hmm. that she had struggled with alcoholism, mm-hmm. but she's been sober now for 25 years. That's amazing. And she's one of the most, um, she she is amazing. Mm. And, you know, she's a sort of a philosopher and a, and a, I mean, she she'll keep up with anybody. And she's a very free spirit and she's found ways to indulge her own art making and mm. being involved with theaters and art galleries and you know, in her retirement. And I'm just, I'm really proud of her and I really feel her influence in a lot of ways. So mm. I just, Hey mom, I want to give you a shout out. I love you and I'm proud of you. And I didn't want to mention that thing about alcoholism without mentioning that that's something that she, you know, overcame and, and grew through, mm. you know, to the benefit of everybody around her. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, your book is, um, for her. I dedicated the book to her. Mm. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And she came to the book release party. She was like selling books in the corner. She was like, <laughs> you're buying one? Why aren't you buying three books? You're going to want to give some away, right? She's like pushing the books in the corner. I'm like, go, mom, go. Yeah, that's awesome. She must be very proud of you. Um, we're, we've, we've become very close. Mm. And, and she's so supportive. And she listens very Occasionally, I will indulge and complain about some difficulty that I'm having, and she listens, and she's really light on the advice, which is nice. Mm. Um, but she'll she'll just say, "She's there. She's there for me," and I try to be there for her. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so we, the ha- book, yeah, the book, the book. What happened? Oh, okay. So I'm. Where we get to? I'm in. I'm in high school. I'm playing jazz. I'm yeah, playing. Yeah, yeah. So wait. So yeah. We're you're you're in high school. You're playing. You're making gobs of money you're for high like school working, kid. Yeah. Yeah. No. Now here's the sad thing. I worked is in a movie theater. Let's the just. The pay say that. is almost the same now as it was then. <laughs> oh. I was oh. making 150, 200 dollars a night. Wow. In uh, this was a long time ago. <laughs> um, 
and it's still the same. You're a musician. You go out. You feel good now if you're making 150 or 200 a night. All right. All that's right. a sad. That's a sad yeah. thing. It's like the price of a bushel of wheat has also not changed since 1940. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. And how do farmers survive? Anyway, well, okay. sorry, I digress. Okay, let's get into agriculture. <laughs> um, well, I was, so I was gonna ask you. You mentioned college. So I went to college. I started at a jazz conservatory, Capital University, Columbus, Ohio. I went in as a jazz bass and jazz composition major. And I found that while I loved the music, I didn't have the passion that I knew would be needed to see me through. Mm -hmm. There's an apprenticeship that you serve in jazz where you play basically 10 hours a day for six years. And then you're sort of ready to go out into the world a little bit. And I loved the music, but I couldn't do that thing. Mm. I didn't feel it was right. And I was interested, getting more interested in classical music. So I ended up at, uh, and I was writing, uh, I wrote a jazz version of the, the Tempest. I saw Patrick Stewart do The Tempest on PBS. And I was like, wow, I'm going to turn this into a musical. So I promptly set about doing that, writing songs, adapting. I cut characters I didn't like. I mean, oh. I, was, I was ignorant and fearless. <laughs> What I didn't like, I took out. What I liked, I enhanced, and I made a jazz musical. And I had a girlfriend at the time who was a theater director at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, uh, Julie Adams. And I, I was between schools. I'd gone on the road with a band. I dropped out of school and went on the road with a band. Stupid. Uh, and then I got dropped from the band because I argued with the manager. It's an interesting experience, but you know, not a great way to go to college. You know, in and out, different schools. I. So there was this opportunity, uh, Julie was going to direct the, the musical at the Black Box at Miami University. She said, we've got approval to do it here. I'm like, oh, maybe I should go to school there. And I had a connection with the school. Actually, a ghost was telling me to go to school there. A ghost? A mentor of mine. My high school band director had been killed uh, oh. after. He, we were very close. He was my mentor through high school, Steve Scherf. He was a drummer. He made up extra classes for me, music history and theory classes. He would just make them up so that I could have it. Wow. Um, all through high school, I was spending most of my time in the music room right. somehow. I was yeah. hardly ever in any classes. Um, <laughs> and he was mentoring me. And, uh, you know, I played, I played a gig with him the night before he was killed. And a drunk guy hit him on the way home after the gig. Oh he had a, you know, a, a wife, two kids, a new baby daughter. They ended up in this town, Oxford, Ohio, where Miami is. And I felt sort of a psychic pressure to go to this place. Wow. It was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And the day that I went and auditioned for this school, uh, Miami University, and they offered me a scholarship, and I accepted. On the spot? Uh, pretty much. Wow. Well, that's. I'm not trying to. I'm sorry, not to make a no, thing of I, it, but please make a thing. They said we, you know, we'd like to have you here, and I ended up. Uh, I ended up there, and as soon as I made that decision the psychic pressure went away and i was able to support the family for a while because they had moved to this town and i remained close with them mm. so my mentor's widow and her and the daughters of the family so i really feel like it was him mm. like guiding me there and that's where i met my wife like within four weeks Come of on. like starting school there <laughs> we met down in that black box theater wow. she was hanging lights i was carrying instruments around and you handed her an instrument and Love at first sight. Well, it was kind of love, love at first at sight. First well, light. Uh, love. <laughs> okay. For me, it was for me it was lust at first sight. It oh. was absolutely pure lust. I can't. Like there wasn't really anything elevated about it, but uh, it did turn out to be a very lasting relationship. Oh, so. that's sweet. Yeah, that's Margaret. 
so so I'm in college. We're doing these musicals. Mm -hmm. I'm studying classical composition, theory, orchestration. I'm absolutely loving it. I find new mentors. Uh, And, you know, and then the first thing I want to do really is come to New York. Uh, So I'm... I bounce around in Ohio, and at that time, I started working at a homeless shelter. Uh, homelessness was sort of a new, a newly named phenomenon at mm-hmm. this point, and there weren't shelters. There were just "quote unquote" bums and street people, but they weren't home. They weren't called homeless people. And I, uh, I was. There's another story. When I was at the jazz school, I would I like to be in quiet places to write music, so. Mm-hmm. And, and I was a country kid who was in a city for the first time in Columbus, Ohio. And I wanted to know what the city was about, what it was like. So um, one Sunday morning, I took a bus to Midtown, what, what, Midtown, Midtown Columbus. There isn't a lot of it. Um, there was a big old hotel there. Mm-hmm. And they had a lobby, beautiful wood panel lobby, big old comfy chairs. And nobody would chase you out if you just go sit there. So I'd take my music paper and my books, and I would go and sit there in the lobby and hang out. And then I would walk around downtown like, What's it like? What What is downtown like? I haven't spent a lot of time in spaces like this. And I was walking past, there's a famous old theater in Columbus called the Ohio Theater, where in high, in high school we'd actually gone to see Othello there. And I was walking past the Ohio Theater, and I walked past a sort of an alley where they have the dumpsters and stuff. I'm just like looking around, and I look back up in the alley, and there's a man laying on the ground next to the dumpster he had a brown suit on and he was laying on the ground and I'd never seen anything like that I'd never imagined anything like that and I was I kind of went into shock like what is going on why is he there how did okay I knew People, I thought people got drunk and there's bums or something. I didn't know anything about it. And then there was this man, but I felt it. I felt it. He's on the ground. No one's, how, no one's doing anything. How can this happen? Why is this happening? And a sort of door opened up in my mind and I got interested. Ended up with a friend who was working uh, as a, like an outreach person working with street people in Columbus. And she said there was a job opening at the shelter. And after college, I needed work. I was playing gigs in bands in Columbus, but I needed more work. And I was doing some childcare also. Mm. But that was all part-time. And this job opened up at the shelter doing uh, intakes. Like when people walk in the door, mm-hmm. you're like finding out who they are and mm-hmm. like what might what services might be available to them. And at this point, what a shelter was, was a literally a warehouse, an open warehouse, had some showers in the back, a, a bunch of lockers on the wall, and a pile of foam mattresses. That was it. Mm-hmm. And at night you came in and you put your foam mattress on the floor and you laid down on it. You could have a shower, you could have a foam mattress and a blanket, and that was the shelter. And we were housing 80, 100 guys a night. So I was working with people that were just coming in off the street. I had absolutely no training, no idea what I was doing. I was white boy from the country, and I was just learning a whole lot. Uh, and I was also learning that I cared, hmm. and that, uh, well, there's just there's a lot to learn. <laughs> and so I started that arc, you know, of uh, becoming familiar with 
you know, the legacy of oppression and trauma and how it plays out in people's mm-hmm. lives. Um, and it was a big learning curve for me because I was really sheltered. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it made a lot of sense. And I liked what I was learning. And I was also sort of was just puzzled by the sort of social mechanics of it. Like, I'm still puzzled by the social mechanics of it. Like, how did this shit happen for so long? Mm-hmm. How is it still happening without more being done to change it? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but... Um, <laughs> So that became another thread in my life. Mm. Uh, Eventually, uh, I moved to New York. I did some au pair work. That was my first job, like just taking care of kids and babies because I'd done it before. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I got a job teaching. uh, I I got a job teaching. I got a temp. There were these things in New York at the time called temporary per diem teaching licenses. Mm -hmm. So you could be like that doesn't it means you're sort of not in anything, but you're allowed to teach. Right. (laughs) I'm trying to make the connection to the book. Is that obvious or? Uh, I kind of. Okay. I'm um, sorry. I'm trying to get that. I like it. I like it. But you, <laughs> should I keep going? Well, this is the thing that I think is very interesting about you. Um, you know, I interview a lot of people mm. and I don't, I'm not asking you a ton of questions. I love it. But um, you're a really good storyteller. You, you really paint, you paint a picture with your words. Do mm. you know that? No, I, I don't have very many stories, so I'm glad the That's ones I'm telling are good. Yeah, they're good. Um, the so it's a per diem teacher is is not a substitute teacher. Is that yeah, it's sort okay. of yeah. You get hired to be a substitute, mm-hmm. and you might land a, a staff position. And I knew there were these things called alternative high schools mm-hmm. for kids that were at the time the term was high risk dropouts. Right. I didn't make that up. <laughs> um, so, and I was interested in that. Mm-hmm. And also it was hard to find jobs in the like, quote unquote, regular schools. Mm-hmm. So I applied, started applying at alternative high schools to run like music things. And uh, I think the first place I went was Lower East Side Prep High School, which is this, right now, it's right next to that uh, market that they rebuilt down on Delancey Essex Delancey Market Essex okay. Market yeah oh oh okay yes so this was when and they still do this you know you take a school and the different floors of the school are actually different right. schools and this was on the second floor of a building over there Elsie Chan was a principal and uh, John Chen was the vice principal and for my interview they had me teach a test lesson mm-hmm. and they gave me an ESL class I think I, I maybe taught the kids how to how to sing like American Pie and a couple other songs. I think we did a Lou Reed song, the telephone song. I was sleeping gently napping when I heard the phone. Who is on the other end calling? Am I even home? They, they're like loving this. Yeah. And I didn't know this. I didn't know. I uh, the, the principal took me uh, into her office after I taught the demo lesson. Mm-hmm. And she said, okay, uh, you're a natural at this you should be doing this. Why don't we have you teach here? Would you like to teach here? And I'm like, well, let's see. The salary is more money than I've ever seen in my life, and there's health care. So I'm going to give this a try. Mm-hmm. It was not part of my plan, but okay. And uh, so I started teaching ESL classes, and I started a guitar program. We got a grant to buy a bunch of guitars, guitar mm-hmm. orchestra, and I'm like a full-time teacher with lesson plans and a time card, right. and I hate it. I actually really hate it and I don't have I don't want to be there that much I don't want to teach that much and the student population is a mix of Chinese immigrants and kids that got kicked out of two or three other schools and this is sort of their last chance Mm. so it's about 80% Chinese kids and 20% black and Latino kids and the Chinese kids are 
older, they lie about their age so they can get a free education. Oh, they're These older. kids are like 19, 20, 21 years wow. old, working in a factory all night. Oh. They come to high school during the day and learn to speak English. Wow. And mixed in with the kids of color, and they all don't get along all that well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of hating it. And I'm so uh, ill-trained and arrogant that I don't pr- ask for help. I think help was available, but I just keep getting like unhappier and unhappier. And I tell this story in the book. Finally, uh, at one point, uh, at, toward the end of my second year, I'm like going out drinking all the time. Just mm-hmm. to, I'm taking all my sick days, mm-hmm. taking all my vacation days. I just don't want to be there. I feel the responsibility. I want to be good. I have fantasies about being a good teacher, Mm -hmm. but I really don't have the chops. I grew up in the Midwest, you know, in a band program. And now I'm in the Lower East Side with these, with these kids that are at risk. And it's, I'm over my head and I'm not doing well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the end of the year, I finally, I throw in the towel. I quit. I hate it. I'm never going to teach again. So the, the, um, the reason why you were not liking it, was it the kids or was it the structure or was it the other teachers or the one thing is I'm no longer an artist. I mean, I don't have energy to make my art. I'm not playing bass. I'm not writing. Uh, I'm, I'm just being a teacher and it's five days a week. And it's, it's more than I, it's just more than I want to do. Even now as a teaching artist, I'm careful not to book too much work because I know that after that, like third day of the week, Mm -hmm. I start losing what it is I want to bring mm. to my to my students. Right. I want to bring my best. And if I'm teaching too much, that best... No, I have more stamina than I used to. I mean, I have days when I'll teach six classes in a school and then go home and teach four private lessons. I can do it. But better if there's less and I have more energy to bring mm. to it, more focus. Mm. Um, maybe people can teach more than that. I, don't know. I know where my limit is and where I start to sort of... My, the quality of my work goes right. down. And I, won't, I don't want to pass that gotcha. anymore. Not, mm-hmm. It's too important. Right. Um, so I'm sorry, I missed the question. We. I was just trying to uh, uh, get underneath why. Oh no, the kids were great, but also th- they were coming to me with these social situations that I had no pregnancies, guns, drugs. Uh, stuff was happening to them that frightened me and bewildered me, and I felt I didn't have anything to offer them, right. no tools to offer them, but they're sharing with me right. their social trauma, and I'm like, damn, I I can't stop thinking about it, nor can I do anything about it. That's an untenable situation. It's sort of taking over my mind. Like the job is taking over my time and energy, and their predicaments are taking over my mind. I'm not prepared. I don't have the tools. I don't have anything to give them. Uh, and it just, it burnt me out and I quit and I swore it off. I will never teach again. I've had it with that. So, uh, my dad was a classroom teacher. I didn't know that. Yeah. He was a math teacher for over 30 years. And, um, I saw, I saw what that life is like. (laughs) Um, so when I decided to go to grad school and get my degree in educational theater, you have a choice. You can get certified or you can do this what's this program called um, colleges and communities, which basically means you're not getting certified um, and that you might be going on to get your PhD and you might go into academia or huh. do something like what I do is go into um, you know, arts education, working in a theater or making theater for young audiences. So there's a lot of different 
pathways that you can take. Anyway, so when I went, I had no understanding of what all the pathways were. I just yeah. knew I was not interested in being a classroom teacher. And my dad really didn't understand, like, why wouldn't you get certified so you have something to fall back on? And I said, well, one, I don't, that's not what I want to do. I don't know exactly what I want to do, but that's not it. And two, like, yeah. why would I be paying for my own education to be, to have a backup? Like the whole point yeah. of this is, so they start to go towards a dream. I know I yeah. love working with kids. Yeah. I know I love working in theater. I want to find a way to do both of those things or put those things together, but I need the tools. Yeah. And for me, the setting is not going to be in a classroom day in and day out. I know that to be true. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> but I didn't know enough. much more than that. So, so, but that said, I have, ha I have worked in schools, not as a teaching artist, but like I was a, I guess I was considered a paraprofessional uh -huh. um, with like very little experience and no education degree um, where I was working either one-on-one -on -one or just supporting a, t a classroom teacher in an elementary setting. And then um, I also worked in daycare. And at every single one of these places, I was always like, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I'm just going to engage with the kids and see where it goes. And from there. you did that naturally. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of that mentoring, um, you know, in the, I think of it as like uh, being the person who's responsible for the container for teaching and learning. Like mm -hmm. you're responsible for the space mm -hmm. and you're forming a space where certain things can happen. And yes. this seems like something that you did naturally. Yes. Yes. And I, and then I had those models and I, I learned from, you know, folks what not to do. And I learned from others what I could do. And then I started to figure out what my style of that could look like. And, and it wasn't until because I was told, you know, oh, go, go get your education degree. Like you should be a teacher. This is your, it's a natural thing for you. Somebody else identified it's, that in you mm -hmm. and pointed it out. to And you. I, I knew about the NYU program and I, I was sort of, you know, waiting until I felt like I really felt like it was necessary for me to go because I knew then I would get the most out of it, I think. And it wasn't until I had sort of segued from being a, a an assistant teacher to being, um, an after school and summer camp leader. Mm -hmm. And it was like, Oh, it's activities that I enjoy. It's mm. themes that I enjoy, but I don't like lesson planning. Like mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily interested in like academic standards, <laughs> but I am interested in learning and I am interested in like creativity for kids. Yeah. And I'm interested in them working with me to create. And then it was like, oh, okay, but I don't have all the tools. Okay, it's time. It's time for me to go to grad school. In a way, you kind of had to invent the the job that you wanted, right? You sort of have kind to of, yeah. make it up because mm -hmm. there isn't necessarily that wasn't necessarily something that's just sort of out there with a name. Not not to my knowledge at that time, at least. You're yeah. right. And I remember when I was approached to do that summer program, I I was working in the in the the pre K room that wasn't the sort of universal. The, the, it was like the threes and fours instead of the, you know, like I'm about to go into kindergarten class. And um, I picked up a lot from that teacher. That te the teacher in that room was very, very strong and taught me a great deal about classroom management, about, um, you know, having structure, but joy. You know, there was just a lot, a lot that I learned. And so when they approached me to do the summer program, one, I had done that before. And so I was super excited that they were ready to give me some sort of leadership position yeah. as opposed to being a, a, an assistant. But it, was yeah. a, it wasn't it was that I needed to be an education major or, right. or have that as right. a background. And so mm -hmm. uh, 
they gave me a lot of autonomy and I liked uh, that a lot because they were like, okay, so you can design what the weeks look like. You can design and you can hire your, your own staff. I was like, oh, come again. Wow. <laughs> What's that now? And so they were like, yeah, so you, the, you can look around the daycare center and then you can also pull people in from outside. Oh, so this thread so in your life started. Remember what? we were talking before about management? This thread. Oh, yeah. That was off life, the record. That's sorry. This started much earlier than I thought. Can I point out a couple yeah. of similarities between us? Sure. Just in what you just said. Um, the, well, first of all, the uh, the um, pleasure that you take and the sort of way it turns you on when there's this chance for you to be in charge of the structure, for you to invent a structure. Mm-hmm. I'm s- completely like that, and I completely get it. Mm. If it's too structured, it's like, even even as a student, like, why are we doing math if the answers are in the back of the book? I mean, they're already there. Give me a, give me a problem that you don't, don't know, know the answer yeah. to, and I'll work. Oh. But the other thing you said about the early grade teachers kindergarten first second grade i like you i learned so much from those teachers and it was about structure and joy Mm -hmm. i was surprised at how structured they could be and how predator the good ones they're they're preternaturally clear like what goes and what doesn't go and how things work it's just clear as a beautiful bell Mm -hmm. but then there's also this playfulness and this kind of easy enjoyment that suffuses the atmosphere yeah. i admire that so much i would take those people to lunch and say how, what are you doing mm. how do you know how to do this mm-hmm. and i would just copy them exactly. so i think we've been influenced by the same sorts of people and it was those early grades now there's things that people in the later grades do mm-hmm. that also i mean the tolerance that high school teachers have for kids that are like trying to press mm. all the buttons and press mm-hmm. the limits and their understanding of how that's a natural stage in the child's development yes. and you have to like work with that rather than mm-hmm. fight against it. Right. That amazes me. Well, okay, special ed yeah, teachers amaze the, me, I but mean, there's so much to learn from these uh, experts. Yeah, there it, there really is. And I think that's the other, re- the, well, it, take that, all of that and see what, look at what I do now. I oversee professional development. I oversee kids having live theater experiences, teaching artists going into working with those kids so that they can express themselves through different art forms, performing art forms. Like all of that is, is based off of the experiences that I had when I was meandering what it felt like, you know, in terms of when I have a resume, people are like back then before grad school, they were like, what is, what is happening? But it all came together once I had this degree. And once I knew sort of a path for myself, um, or well, it was what the, the possibilities degree, were what, the, your real on the ground experience mm. and the degree, and then more on the ground experience. Yeah. Cause there's this, this play between, your ideas and does this really work yes. in real time in real life? Yes. And if if your listeners don't know this, you know the program that you're running with New Victory is robust, super healthy, and famous for its quality. And people who are in theater education should absolutely take a really close look at what you're doing. And I know you guys are so careful about how you develop both your uh, both the programs. And your TAs, the professional development that you provide for TAs, you're really careful with it. And I would use, to use Michael Wiggins' word, since he's brave enough to use this word, you're loving about it. Mm. Like you're really, you're putting a lot into it for all the right reasons. And and from a very informed point of view, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Because you've done the work. You've been out there. You know what your teaching artists are facing. You know where the easy parts and the hard parts are. (laughs) 
So yeah, interesting. So so when did you segue? I guess I I mean I remember that story in the book, but when did you segue and 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 begin to work as a teaching artist or or was there a gap? And yeah. if so, like what led you towards working as a teaching artist? After I left uh, the full-time classroom teacher gig, um, I started, I picked up, I was, I was playing bass for a couple different bands. I started my own band. We were playing in the village and Upper West Side a little bit. Um, and in, in this case, it was like, um, I'm, I guess I'm a terrible business person because I would just kind of choose the wrong venues. And also my music gets caught in between. My music for theater, I've, I've written operas and musicals, mm-hmm. and they're always somewhere in between. Like it's not so opera-ish that you'd call it an opera, but yeah. it's not so musical-ish that you'd call it a musical. Huh. It's just in this middle place. And I was, we'd be like playing down on a, on Bleecker Street, playing in a bar there, but I'm writing songs that are eight minutes long and have cello parts. And it's like, you know, people are in the bar like to... Meatloaf. To, <laughs> well, I, okay. Or, or Queen? Or, uh, or the Moody Blues. Okay. That's another story. So I'm in, in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, and FM radio was like the thing because it was all unstructured and they would play whole albums and... You know, I, and I'm the I'm the white kid from the sticks, and and the people, I mean, bless them. The people I'm growing up with, a lot of them are really rough people. Mm. It's farmers, and the humor is real rough, and there's just very easy racial prejudice mm. flowing all around the place, and there's a sort of a physical, mental roughness uh, that I'm in the middle of, and I'm I'm just sort of sheltered. I don't I'm not going to the theater. I'm not going to a lot of concerts i've never heard an orchestra in my life Mm. stuff like that Uh, but one night i'm got my clock radio on and the fm station starts playing this song and the song goes on and then it changes into this other song and it doesn't stop and then it keeps going there's this other song and they're going through the days of the week and this is fantastic and then there's the rock band and then there's the orchestra and then they're doing the next day of the week and we go through this whole day and then they get to the end of the day and this guy's like cold-hearted orb that rules the night removes the color from our sight red is green and yellow white but we decide which is right and which is an illusion do, 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 do. That's the end of uh, Moody Blues Days of the Future Past. Wow. And I'm like, holy crap, what in God's name was that? <laughs> My mind was completely blown. Mm-hmm. I had no idea you could make like this series of songs that just blended one into another and the music kept going. Mm-hmm. And that, then I'm like, okay, I'm doing that. I want to do that. So here I'm in a bar in the, in the village, like, and my songs go on and on and they're orchestrated and it's completely the wrong thing. People just want to drink beer and, and listen to R&B. Yeah. But okay, but there we are. Um, and, and I'm learning and growing and meeting a lot of good people. And, I, and it's, there's no money. So I do construction. I learn to hang sheetrock and sling mud and do painting and light carpentry and... Uh, just surviving, and then I decided to go to grad school, and the choice is between Manus School of Music, I get a scholarship mm-hmm. offer, it's very ivory tower, mm-hmm. and then there's NYU Musical Theater Writing Program, which is so like smack in the world, like make stuff, meet people, 
and when I figured out that the uh, the people, the, somebody told me that I would have to actually hide my jazz work and my theater work. I would have to hide it from the faculty at Nanus because they wouldn't really want to know about any of that. Aww. So I thought, okay, that is not going to be the place for me. Hmm. So I went to NYU, musical theater writing, fell in love with opera, um, met great people. You know how the, your graduate school experience is so much shaped by the cohort so that much, you're with? yes. And I had, we had a great, so a lot of experienced people. My friends are from that cohort yeah. still. Yeah. We, were, we, we skewed older. There were a lot of people, 30s, 40s, couple in their oh, 50s, okay. one in their 60s. Nice. Like real um, experienced practitioners mm -hmm. making music theater together. Mm. I came out of there, got to the end of a couple years of grad school, and one of the teachers, Mel Marvin, wonderful composer, and Tom Cabanis talks about Mel because they're from the same part of the world. Yeah. And Mel, we went for a walk, and he's like, hey, uh, so what are you going to do now? I'm like, well, I'm doing construction, and I'm not sure where this is all going to lead. And he says... Why don't you uh, come do? Why don't you go over to Lincoln Center and uh, and think about being a teaching artist? I'm like, no way, no way. Am I going to teach again? I've had enough of that. I don't like it. Uh, I wasn't good at it. And who wants to do something they don't like and they're not good at? He goes, well, how about I can introduce you over there and maybe just give them a look. So I gave it a look. And I'm reading, start to read, they have an audition process there too. And I start to read Maxine Green and a little bit of John Dewey. And I'm like, oh, this makes sense. The thing I was doing doesn't make any sense, but this makes sense. Mm. And the opportunity came up. I auditioned. I did their workshop. And at that, at that time, they were doing long workshops. <laughs> like, you know, your training was like three weeks in the summer. Wow. Eight hours a day or whatever. Mm. It was in performances at night. Mm. And then they, you know, they have an audition piece, sort of your know, TA audition. I got into the, to the group and started teaching. And there were these great people. Um, uh, uh, Hillary Easton, Salah mm -hmm. Sarikangas, Tom Cavanis mm -hmm. was there, Barbara Ellman, mm -hmm. John Toth. Um, so many wonderful, it was especially the visual artists and the dancers who started shaping me because they would do workshops you know and lincoln center is all what i call uh preparatory we're preparing students to encounter a work of art right mm -hmm. and the ways that they did this they would do these things for the dance and the visual and the museum visits and the dance performances and to a certain extent the theater performances um also um the teaching artists were presenting these uh, activities that connected directly with the work of art because that was um, really the rule at Lincoln Center at the time was mm -hmm. it has to connect with the work of art that's what you're teaching to the work of art and there were some master practitioners the ones that really affected me were not the music teaching artists it was the visual artists and the dancers because I would see what they did and, and translate it mm. uh, and all the principles that come up in the teaching artist book that I wrote are often come from what I learned from them and translated into musical form and started doing. At Lincoln Center, you co-design all your lessons with the classroom teachers. The classroom teachers are supposedly trained in aesthetic education. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. You know, they do get some training, but they're not artists. And if they're not artists, the kinds of insights that they have into the work are often... They were often superficial, mm. not because they couldn't have had deeper uh, insight into the work as part of the planning process, but mostly they didn't take the time to get to know the work of art. Mm. You're going to teach to a work of art, 
you got to spend some time with it. You got to get down and dirty with it. And they mostly weren't doing that. Mm. So this was already a weakness in the Lincoln Center model that bothered me. And I talked to fa to the staff a lot about it, talked to other TAs, like, mm -hmm. how, how can we make this different? You know, this is supposed to be a partnership. How can we help our partners, you know, bring more to the table? Because they're so capable in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Are we accessing that? Are we bringing out their best? Are, are they ready to partner with us in this work? I don't know that I ever answered that question. Mm -hmm. But um, spent 13 years at Lincoln Center Education with Lincoln Center Institute, now Lincoln Center Education, being a TA, designing, being in every kind of classroom, high-end schools, Title I schools. And they used to have this big radius. I think it was like a 60-mile like radius that they were working. So you could get sent out. You, you could have a two-hour commute yeah. out to a oh, school yeah. and back. Mm -hmm. um, those <laughs> were the days, my friend. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we are sending teaching artists to the top of the Bronx and all the way out to as far as far east Queens as you can go. So, yeah. I mean, the radius is wide. The only place that we don't tend to go is Staten Island. No, we were in New Jersey. I mean, we were, these were... Oh, we go to Jersey. Yeah. No, but 60 miles. I don't even know how far that is. What is... I mean, I know an what hour, An is. hour's drive in a car if there's no traffic. Okay. <laughs> ah. And plus you're... But like outside of Manhattan. Yeah, mean. yeah. But oh. I'm on a bus, right? Or yeah. a train. Anyway, um, I, I, I learned so much. And at the, toward the end of that time, I was really seeing that there were some patterns recurring in the work that all the teaching artists were do, doing, like just certain principles that seemed to be really important. Mm. And I thought that if we're going to professionally develop ourselves, why don't we talk about these things? Yeah. Why don't we say, hey, everybody really needs to know uh, how to form, how to, how to establish safe space. Everybody knows, needs to know how to work with analogies. Everybody needs to know how to design activities that involve multiple modalities during the arc of a lesson you have to access multiple modalities and at the time you know uh, gardner's uh, uh multiple intelligences were like the super hot thing that right. everybody was talking about and to me intelligences translate into modalities like are you working visually are you working mm -hmm. orally are you working mm -hmm. physic how and right. you know and which students benefit the most from which modalities right. because if you're just if you know if you're just teaching in one for too long you you're not lose. serving yeah. your students. Um, and I wanted us to go in that direction um, to say these are sort of the building blocks that teaching artists work with regardless of their art form. These are some of the principles that, that we're going to all need to get good at working with. Thank you for listening to Episode 34, Act 1 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Daniel Levy, Reflection, Connection, and Resonance. Join us next time for Act 2. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the brand new pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry, the gram at teaching artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube, check out the teaching artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch the latest video series, We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Ooh.